All right, so Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're headed today. We're going to just continue our way through the book of Ephesians. Um, Now, before we read our passage, um, when I was growing up, my mother introduced me to the classic shows like I Love Lucy or The Andy Griffith Show or The Dick Van Dyke Show. Any of you fans? Yeah? It's great stuff. I mean, yeah, you know, you get the the TV land or whatever that channel is called. Um, we loved watching these shows together, right? They are classics of the, the, the classic American sitcom. Now, now another series of shows that, that's totally different that, that we like to watch were, were the CSI shows, right? And the spinoff CSI Miami, right? Uh, each episode has its own mystery solved by forensic science and keen observation. But what these shows, you know, the, the sitcom and the procedural have in common is that they are episodic, right? Each, each episode is fairly self-contained, uh, with the sitcom, you know, some kind of conflict pops up at the, somewhere at the beginning of the episode, and then, you know, the various comedic implications begin to play out, uh, and by the end of the episode, everything's all sorted out, everything's okay, and, and then, you know, you pick up next time. Uh, with the procedural, uh, it's similar. Some kind of mystery uh, starts off the episode, uh, then the inv- investigation plays out and, and keeps going, and by the end of the episode, everything is solved, right? And then the next time you, you tune in, it's the same thing over again. The episodes all have the same characters, but each one has its own plot. Each episode has its own plot. Not, now, rarely, but every now and then, you would get one of those special episodes that ends with the words, to be continued, at the bottom. Right, but most of the time, uh, each episode was its own thing, you know, and you tune in next time. But things aren't quite so anymore. You know, in the age of, of the Netflix streaming, binge watching TV, just about every show has that to be continued format. Just about every show is, is a cliffhanger, as we call it. The episodes are not self contained anymore, uh, but rather there's this plot that goes over the whole season, and sometimes multiple seasons, right? It, it keeps you watching. It keeps you tuned in, right? And this is kind of the way that, that most shows go nowadays. Well, if you look down at your Bible, uh, you'll probably see some big numbers on there, right? They, they mark off different chapters. And depending on the kind of Bible you have, you might even have some headings that mark off different sections within each of those chapters. And, you know, as I mentioned today, today we're in Ephesians chapter 2. You'll see a big number 2 right there. Now, I think we've often, as we read the Bible, made a mistake. Because we've often looked at these section breaks or these chapter breaks uh, as kind of like the start of a new episode. Uh, Like one of those old TV shows. You know, each one is kind of its own self-contained thing. Uh, and, and then, you know, you turn the page and you start a new chapter. But that is just not the case. The Bible is far more like those cliffhangers. Uh, it's, it's far more like these shows where uh, the, the plot unfolds over the course of many chapters, sometimes over the course of many books. 
The Bible is much more like those cliffhangers. It's meant to be a page turner. And so the plot that began in chapter 1 of Ephesians continues in chapter 2 of Ephesians. There are several themes and ideas that continue and connect um, well, there are also new ones that, that are going to be introduced as we read. So I want to pay attention to some of these connections as we reflect on Ephesians chapter 2 today. And so let's read today's passage, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world following the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for this good news that we were dead and you have made us alive. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 2 continues the plot of chapter 1. And there are several connections that we'll look at, but the most basic one is this. At the end of chapter 1, Paul was describing the power of God that he put to work in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. Right? We talked about this last week. But here, in chapter 2, he continues describing that power that God has put to work. But it's this power that he has put to work in raising us from the dead as well. The theologian John Stott summarized it like this. Jesus Christ was dead, but God raised and exalted him. And you also were dead, but God raised and exalted you in Christ. This is the continued plot 
from Ephesians chapter 1 to Ephesians chapter 2. What God has done for Christ has happened for those who are in Christ. This is the big picture of the book of Ephesians. But let's look a little bit more closely at this passage that we've read. As, as we look over these, these 10 verses, I think there are three basic themes that, that emerge. Death, life, and living. Death, life, and living. So let's consider all of these. It starts with death. Now, I mentioned that, that chapter 2 is meant to be a continuation from chapter 1, but this first verse is a pretty stark transition, isn't it? Right? Paul goes from proclaiming the fullness of him who fills all in all to you were dead. Right? I mean, that, that is a powerful, a stark transition, but it's an effective transition. It certainly gets our attention. It certainly shows us the contrast between us and God. Because apart from God, who is the source of life, we are dead. And this is what we were like. Because of our pull towards sin, we have turned away from God and therefore away from life itself. And so Paul says, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Now, I think a lot of times our, our understanding of sin stops right there with, with this first verse, right? We've done something wrong because we have sinned, therefore we are spiritually dead. But that's not where Paul stops. Paul keeps going. In verse 2, he writes about the course of this world, the ruler of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. So when we think of sin, we usually think of individual action. You know, I did something wrong, so I need forgiveness, so I can get back on the right track. Now, sin is absolutely this. Sin is absolutely individual action. But if it's only that, that's far too small of a picture. The picture that Paul paints here is much larger than that, right? The death that Paul describes here does not only have to do with individual trespasses and sins, but also the course of the world, right? And this mysterious ruler of the power of the air. You see, sin is far more than an individual problem. Sin is embedded in the whole world. And we see this from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the story of the beginning of sin. You know, there's this mysterious being that shows up and twists the truth, which leads Eve to eating what she's not supposed to eat, and then she shares it with Adam. And, you know, sin, it's not an individual action. What we see in, in that story is that it, it's much more like an infection that spreads from one person to another. And so the next thing you know, they're hiding. 
Adam is pointing the finger at, at Eve, and you know Eve is blaming that sneaky serpent. Everyone is pitted against everyone else. It is a complete breakdown of society. And, and this is only one man and one woman, right? So multiply that out by several billion, and you have the world that we live in. You have the world that we live in. Sin is not just an individual issue. It is an infection that has spread across the whole world. Sin is in the very air that we breathe. And that's how Paul describes this mysterious, sneaky being. The ruler of the power of the air. And this image is, is, I think, all the more powerful for us after, you know, weeks of fire and smoke. Or all the more powerful even now amidst the global pandemic that we are in. Because from what we know, one of the main ways that this virus spreads is through the air. Which is why we're all masked up and spread out. This thing can get into the very air that we breathe, and it's led to a lot of death. And that's what sin is like. It's not only within us. It also exists between us. And we see this when it destroys families, when it destroys friendships, when it destroys communities and societies. I think another way of talking about sin that's both individual and communal, uh, within and between, is the use of the words nature and nurture. Right? We can all think about who we are and what we do and wonder whether it's a result of nature or nurture. Right? You know, do I like music because it's in my nature to like music or is it because I grew up listening to music? You know, am I a happy-go-lucky person because it's in my nature? Or is it because life has been pretty easy? You know, am I easily angry because it's in my nature? Or is it because my parents were really angry? We could go on. We could ask this question about many, many different things. And the same question could be asked about sin. Do we sin because it's in our nature? Or do we sin because we learned it from others? And Paul seems to answer this question with a simple yes. Is it nature or is it nurture? Yes. Look at verse 3. Paul describes how our passions and our desires have been twisted toward evil. Now, now, this doesn't mean that de desire in and of itself is inherently bad. Just that our desires are all too often distorted toward that which is not good. In the late 4th century, uh, Augustine described his own sin as unholy love. Unholy love. Obviously, love is good. But when it's toward the unholy, it becomes sin. And the very same thing is true of desire, as Paul describes here. When desire becomes distorted, 
Well, then it leads to sin. So this distorted desire, this unholy love, is something that exists within us, right? It is part of our nature. Our desires are distorted. Our loves are disordered. And yet there's also a nurture aspect to this. At the end of the verse, Paul describes us with the phrase, children of wrath. Children of wrath, which is to say, we've had wrath as our parent. As children of wrath, we have been nurtured by wrath. Wrath is the, is the thing that has raised us up. Wrath is the thing that has taught us what we know and shown us how to be. We see this on display every day as our society finds something new to erupt in rage about, right? Every news cycle. We see that, yeah, children of wrath. And this shouldn't surprise us, because as children of wrath, well, people are simply behaving as their parent taught them, with wrath, with rage. And so this is the state of death that Paul describes. Right? It takes shape in individual actions, but it also shapes our whole society the course of this world. It exists in the very air that we breathe. It distorts our desires and it fills us with wrath. Now, with this big picture of sin and death that Paul's describing, it can begin to feel very impossible to get out of. It just feels impossible to escape. It's like being caught in a web or like feet stuck in quicksand. And the harder we try to get out, the deeper we sink. And that's true. That's exactly what sin is like. We cannot heal ourselves of sin any more than a dead person can bring themselves back to life. And that's what makes verse 4 so good. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So even when we were following all of our distorted desires, even when we were serving the ruler of the air and spreading the infection of sin, even when we were caught in this web with no way out, swallowed up by the hopelessness of death, God has made us alive together with Christ. And so this passage moves from death to life. Now, I love this phrase, alive together with Christ. I think it's worth meditating on for a while. Just spend some time sitting with that phrase, alive together with Christ. I think this phrase is a further description of what Paul said was God's plan back in chapter 1. Do you remember this? In, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, Paul wrote that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth 
in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, right? Because we have been gathered up in Christ, we have been made alive together with Christ. And, and this points us back to all of those in Christ blessings that we read about in chapter 1. So instead of the Spirit at work among the disobedient, in Christ we are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Instead of being children of wrath, in Christ we are adopted to be children of God. Instead of dead in sins, we are alive together with Christ. And as striking as it is for us to go from being dead to being alive, perhaps the most surprising thing in this passage is God himself. I mean, so many of us at some point have been taught to believe that because of our sin and rebellion, God wants to kill us. But that is just not what this passage says. God does not want to kill us because of our sin. In fact, God wants to bring us to life out of our sin. And he doesn't do this reluctantly. It is out of the great love with which he loved us that God has made us alive together with Christ. This is not a God who sort of begrudgingly forgives us because it's, I guess it's the right thing to do. Rather, this is a God who lavishes us with grace. In chapter 1, verse 19, Paul wrote about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Here, in chapter 2, verse 7, he writes about the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. Paul could hardly be more clear. God delights in redeeming us. The grace and kindness that he has toward us is immeasurable. And it's going to take all of eternity, and then some, for us to even start wrapping our minds and hearts around what kind of grace and love this is. This is what God has done. But Paul goes even a step further. Right? God has not only made us alive together with Christ. Look back at verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so this passage is not only about the movement from, life, or from death to life, uh, but also from life to living. After all, God didn't just bring us to life so we could kill time, but rather so that we could really live. That's why we, we have these banners up in this room. It's why we talk about these things all the time. 
God didn't just raise us up to wander around, but to cross the street into community. He raised us up not just to be at peace, but to partner for peace with others, with each other. So that ultimately we might discover this kingdom of God as we are seated next to him as he reigns. Jesus is the king, right? He is the one who rules this kingdom. But, but we, we're invited to join him in the work of his kingdom. God has work for us to do. He has life for us to live. But Paul is very clear that doing this work is not what gets us into the kingdom. Rather, it's the other way around. Salvation does not come from works, but works do come from salvation. He writes, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. But then he goes on. We are what he has made us. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We are what God made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I like the way that some other translations put it. We are his handiwork. We are his workmanship. Right? The work of the kingdom is not ultimately ours, but rather it's the work that God does through us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, a well-known author and, and pastor, put it this way. Work is not what we do. We are the work that God does. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. He is our head. We are his hands and his feet in the world. This is what God intends to be our way of life. So we go not only from death to life, but also from life to living. And this living is meant to be a sign to the whole world that God's kingdom reigns. His kingdom is coming. This is meant to be a proclamation of the good news. Now, looking at this passage, you know, it starts off, you were dead in your sins. I've heard before, if we're going to tell people the good news, uh, we need to start by telling them the bad news. And the thing is, that's just not what Paul does. He didn't start with chapter 2. He started with chapter 1. The Bible doesn't start with Genesis 3. It starts with Genesis 1. We're not called to go around telling everyone that they're dead. I think most of us are actually pretty well acquainted with how messy the world is. Our call to share the gospel is not to convince people how bad things are, but rather to show them how good things can be. That's what it is to be his handiwork. That's what it is to live in Christ, to be a people who proclaim this is the kingdom of God. 
Come join. Come be a part of this. From death to life to living, this is who we are. And so as we move from from the text to the table, I want us to take a moment to pray together. Because we're not supposed to go around telling other people how bad they are, but sometimes we do need to pause and acknowledge how dead we've been. And so I want to lead us into a prayer of confession. And so pause for just a moment. And join me in praying this out loud. Eternal and merciful God, you have loved us with a love beyond our understanding. And you have set us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Yet we have strayed from your way. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Through what we have done, and what we have left undone. As we remember the lavish gift of your grace, we praise you and give you thanks that you forgive us yet again. Grant us now, we pray, the grace to die daily to sin and to rise daily to new life in Christ who lives and reigns with you, and in whose strong name we pray. Amen.